The following sermon, entitled Saving Faith, was preached on the morning of September 4th, 2022 at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. It has been edited for content. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. This morning, let's turn in God's Word to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we will read chapter 1, and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the inspired and infallible Word of our God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia Asia, be turned away from me of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well." We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 7. 
Lord's Day 7. Are all men then as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into Him and receive all His benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the Gospel which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. What are these articles? And then what follows is the Apostles' Creed. The Heidelberg Catechism has a way of asking the next most logical question. The previous Lord's Day taught us that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. For the previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 6 focused on the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonderful truth that there is salvation to be found in Him apart from anything that we must do, apart from any conditions that man must fulfill. So Lord's Day 6 set before us the Deliverer from our sin and misery. But now that raises the question, Who then is saved? And how are we saved? It's one thing to say that Christ is the Deliverer and that there's salvation found in Him. But who are the objects of that salvation? And how do they become partakers of it? And that's where Lord's Day 7 comes in. Those are the questions that Lord's Day 7 answers. And that's evident from question answer 20. Are all men then, as they perish in Adam, saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into Him and receive all His benefits by a true faith. So it tells us the whom. Salvation is for those who believe and only those. It's not for all men. And then in giving us that answer, it's really telling us the how. We receive these blessings of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So that the catechism is answering the next most logical question when it comes to Lord's Day 7. Now although Lord's Day 7 treats both of those, the the objects of salvation and the, the manner in which we're saved, the means by which we're saved, this morning we're going to focus on the latter. and We're going to focus on how we are saved, namely by a true faith. And especially we want to focus on what's really the heart and center of this Lord's Day. Namely, question answer 21, what is true faith? We want to spend some time looking at how the catechism itself defines faith. And we do that in part because last time we treated Lord's Day 7, we focused on the the engrafting part and the union. We're certainly going to touch on that, but we want to look more at the fact that faith is knowledge and confidence. 
So this morning we consider Lord's Day 7 using as our theme, saving faith. First, we'll look at the nature of faith. Second, we'll look at the source of faith. And then third, exercising our faith. First, the nature. Second, the source. And then the exercise of it. The heart of Lord's Day 7 is the question, what is true faith? That's a question asked in question 21. And the answer given is this. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel in my heart that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's teaching us that there are two elements to true saving faith. There is both the knowledge and the confidence. First, saving faith includes a certain knowledge. And for the catechism to teach that is for the catechism to be drawing from Scripture. And that Scripture itself points us to this very truth. It does so in the passage that we read. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. For him to put it that way, I know whom I have believed, is for Scripture itself to connect believing and knowing. The two go together. You see the same thing in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Here it's linking faith and an understanding. If we're going to believe that God created all things, we have to have a, a knowledge that He did that in the beginning. That's why the Catechism says a part of saving faith is this idea of a, a certain knowledge. And the object of our knowledge is especially God's Word. That's the language of the Catechism, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word. We're talking about a knowledge of what God says to us in the Scriptures. That said, this is more than just a knowledge about what Scripture says. In other words, faith is not a matter of being really good at Bible trivia. But the language of the Catechism is that we hold for truth all that God has said to us. It's telling us that this knowledge of faith is, uh, includes assenting to these things. It's accepting these things as true. This is God's Word to us. That's a part of saving faith. A certain knowledge. But it also includes, according to the Catechism, an assured confidence. That's the other element of saving faith. And again, the Catechism is drawing this right from Scripture. Because Scripture itself points us to this assurance, this confidence of faith. That's expressed in 2 Timothy, Timothy 1, verse 12. We heard Paul say, for I know whom I have believed. And now he adds, and am persuaded. I'm confident that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Again, he's connecting that to the whole idea of believing. 
See the same dynamic in Romans 4, verses 20 and 21, where we read about Abraham, that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Abraham's faith included the fact that he was fully persuaded. He was assured. He was confident that God would keep His promise. Same thing in John 6, verse 69, where Peter says as a part of his confession of faith, we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's on the basis of these passages and others that we believe that faith includes this element of assurance, of confidence. And especially, confidence in Jesus Christ. That's the focus here. But also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel. And then it goes on to speak of what Christ has done for us. Of His merits in earning for us righteousness. And this assurance is personal. The Catechism says that we have this confidence that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given. It's not just confidence that Christ saved His people, that He saved His elect, but assurance that He did this for me. That what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago applies to me. That's the confidence, the assurance of faith. And now, in light of this central teaching of the catechism that faith includes both knowledge and confidence, we can step back and recognize some truths about faith. On one hand, we recognize that from a certain point of view, we can speak of two different objects of our faith. The Word and Christ. It's appropriate to speak of God's Word, the Scriptures, or more narrowly, the Gospel as the object of our faith. The thing that we believe. And that's why the Catechism, when it comes to question 22, what then is necessary for a Christian to believe? You might expect the answer to be you must believe in Jesus Christ. And that would be a a good, valid answer. And really, in many ways, that is the answer. But it doesn't put it that way. Instead, it says, all things promised us in the Gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And before that, it had talked about knowing all things that were revealed in the Word. So that, from a certain point of view, God's Word is the object of our faith. But at the same time, it's entirely appropriate and good to speak of Christ as the object of our faith because the reality is that Christ is the one that faith lays hold of. Christ is the one that faith believes in and embraces for salvation. And now again, for the catechism to set forth both as the objects of our faith is because Scripture itself points us in that direction. There are certain passages of Scripture that talk about faith and that use these almost interchangeably so that it goes back and forth between talking about believing in something that the Word reveals to us and then it goes right into believing in Christ Himself or on Christ. 
We see this, for example, in Romans 10, verses 9 and then 11. Verse 9 we read, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him up from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That God raised him up from the dead is some truth set forth in Scripture, and we're believing what Scripture tells us, therefore. But then in verse 11, we read, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him, on Him shall not be saved. So it's clearly talking about Christ as the object of our faith. We see the same thing in 1 John 5. When we compare verses 1 and 10. Verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, is born of God. So, it's telling us if you believe what Scripture says about Jesus Christ, the message of Scripture, but then in verse 10, we read, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in Himself, so that Christ is made the object of our faith. And I trust you recognize for Scripture to do this is not, does not mean there's a contradiction here. Because the reality is that Christ is revealed in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the, the means whereby Christ is conveyed to us. So that really you, can't, you cannot believe in Christ without believing in the Scriptures. And we can never know Christ apart from the Word. And that's why we can speak of two objects of our faith, recognizing that in many ways they're one and the same. Now all of that underscores the importance then of being in the Word. Since Christ is set forth on the pages of Scripture, since the Scriptures are the, the means whereby He's conveyed to us, well, we need to be in the Word then. Our faith is strengthened by the means of the Gospel. And that underscores then the importance of being here in church on the Sabbath day to sit under the preaching of the Gospel. This underscores the importance of our devotions. Of reading God's Word. Of memorizing God's Word. Of studying God's Word. This underscores the importance of Bible study. The Lord willing, this month our weekly Bible studies will start up again. And those are an important way for us to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding of God's words so that our faith might be strengthened. All of that is under the heading of one of the things that this Lord's Day teaches us about faith. That from a certain point of view, we can speak of two different objects of faith, recognizing that the two were interconnected. At the same time, this Lord's Day also teaches us that there are really two main acts of faith or two main activities of faith. Again, that flows from what we've just been what we just went through in going through the language of Lord's Day seven. On the one hand, there's the the activity of knowing. Because after all, faith is a certain knowledge, and therefore when faith comes to express itself, when faith is exercised. That includes then knowing. And that knowledge that is a, an activity of the renewed mind. When the Spirit of Christ regenerates us, gives us new life, 
life, a part of that is that He takes the mind that was in darkness, that was clouded over, and He illuminates it. He, he puts a light into it. And it's with that renewed mind then that we can then know the truths of God's Word. We can then know Jesus Christ. So that's one activity of faith. At the same time, faith also trusts. Because after all, faith is an assured confidence. There's that assurance aspect of it. And the activity, the corresponding activity there is the trusting, the embracing of Jesus Christ. And whereas not knowing is an activity of the mind, the renewed mind, the trusting is really a, a matter of the renewed will. We have a mind, we have a will. And again, when the Spirit gives us new life, He takes that will that was evil, disobedient, refractory, and He, he makes it good. He makes it obedient. He makes it pliable. He, he completely changes our wills. And now with the renewed will, we then trust Jesus Christ. We, we lay hold upon Him. So there's really two different acts, two main acts of faith. To use an illustration, drawing from a reformed author, you can liken true faith, the two acts of faith, to both taking a cup full of some drink and then actually drinking the contents of that cup. The taking hold of the cup is like the, the knowledge of faith. We're, we're taking hold of God's Word and saying this is true. But there's more to faith than just taking the cup in hand. Faith includes, and really the heart of faith is, the drinking of the contents of that cup. And that's the, the trusting aspect of faith. The, the embracing aspect of faith. And this is a valid illustration for talking about saving faith. Exactly because Christ Himself taught us that to believe in Jesus Christ is a matter of partaking of His flesh and blood. To eat His flesh. To drink His blood. Not that we do that in a, a physical way, but He's teaching us about the nature of saving faith. And it's when we recognize that aspect of saving faith that there are the, the two aspects, knowledge and confidence with their corresponding activities of knowing and trusting, that that helps us to understand the difference between what we would call true faith and what we would call a false faith. And there's warrant for speaking, for making that distinction because Really, Scripture itself points us in that direction. It does so in this passage that we read this morning. In verse 5, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. He refers to Timothy's faith as an unfeigned faith. Children, to feign something is to pretend. It's to fake something. We sometimes speak of he feigned being sick. He was just pretending to be sick. He was trying to get out of doing something that he did not want to do. 
Well, Paul speaks of Timothy's faith as an unfeigned faith and indicating he was confident that Timothy was not just pretending to be a believer. He was not just faking it that he was a child of God, but it was an unfeigned faith. It was real. It was genuine. It was a true saving faith. And it's on the basis of this passage and others that we recognize a a distinction between false faith and true faith. In fact, the Reformed tradition has even taken this whole category of false faith and said there's subcategories within that so that we could speak of a, a temporary faith or a historical faith or a miraculous faith. And there are different Scripture passages that we would draw each of those categories from. The overall point being, we make a distinction. But now we need to clarify that. Because the reality is that there is no such thing as a false faith. The reality is that you either have true faith or you have no faith at all. It's one or the other. But then why do we speak about a feigned faith or a false faith? Well, the reason for that is because sadly, there are some who say they have faith in Jesus Christ, but do not. That is, there are those who profess that they have faith, but the reality is that they do not possess saving faith. It's a sham. It's for that reason we have to make this distinction between the two. But now, all of that raises the question, what then is the real difference between the two? And that's where this Lord's Day is helpful. Because to put it very simply, in light of everything we've already covered, a feigned faith, a false faith, is one that does not include that assured confidence. It's void of trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is, a feigned faith may well include knowledge. It does include knowledge. Someone who professes to believe knows what the Bible has to say. And they may even verbally affirm, I believe that what's in here is true. But it does not include the trust. It does not include the assured confidence. It does not include what Paul was able to say that I'm fully persuaded of this. And that this is not just true in a general way, but that this is true for me. Christ came to die for me and my sins. That's the fundamental difference. To go back to our illustration, a false faith, a feigned faith, is one that only ever takes the cup in hand. And maybe it goes so far as to take a sip, but then never swallow. It spits that, the contents of that cup back out. Never actually takes it in and never actually consumes it, partakes of it. Whereas a true faith includes that, that drinking of the contents of the cup. So that, the fundamental, so that we can see there's a fundamental difference between the two. In the one, only the mind is involved. and in the other, you have both the mind and the will. The will laying hold of Jesus Christ. 
And this helps us. When we see individuals, perhaps individuals who are family members, some who grew up in the church, grow up professing faith in Jesus Christ, or they come into the church and profess faith in Jesus Christ, but then, sadly, turn their back on Christianity. Leave the church and live an altogether ungodly life. We wonder what happened. Did that man lose his faith? And if he lost his faith, does that mean he had salvation and he lost salvation? No. What this reminds us is that such an individual never had true saving faith. He only had the knowledge of God's Word. And even then, it was more knowledge about what God has to say and not a a personal saving knowledge. Now, this does not mean that as a congregation, we are supposed to look around at each other and constantly be asking, well, I wonder if that person's faith is a true faith or a feigned faith. That's not the point. For as the canons of Dort teach us, so long as someone is making a, a profession of faith and living a, a regular Christian life that is a life that's in harmony with their what they've confessed to believe, there's no obvious impenitent sins, well then we give them the judgment of charity. We believe them when they say, I am a believer. Perhaps it goes so far as to say what Paul says in verse 5 to Timothy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. And And then he speaks of it being in his parents and He's persuaded in Him and all this connected to His giving thanks to God. He's rejoicing to see faith in Timothy. A true, genuine faith. And that's true of us when we see one another and we see that faith coming to expression and we can tell that that faith is genuine. We give thanks to God in this same way. So we've looked at the nature of faith. And we've contrasted it to a false faith. But now the next question then becomes, where does this true faith come from? I understand there's a difference between the two, but now I want to know what's the source of this true saving faith? And that's what we want to look at, look at in the second point of the sermon. The source of faith. And the teaching of Scripture is that faith does not find its source in man. And that needs to be said because that's a widespread error that's found in the church world. That's really one of the fundamental errors of Arminian theology and much of the evangelical church world. And it comes, that view comes out, for example, when you ask the, when they pose the question, well, how could one be born again? And the answer that's given is he must believe in order to be born again. That is, before he ever receives life from Christ, the life of Christ, first he believes. And that what's clearly implied in that is that faith is inherent to man. It has its source in man. And that goes hand in hand with a wrong understanding of the nature of faith. For much of the broader church world, faith is 
nothing more than the supposed free will that man supposedly still has. For them, the activity of faith is simply using your will to make a choice for Jesus Christ to accept Him into your heart. But that notion, that that idea of faith runs contrary to Scripture. For Scripture teaches us that no one can come to God in true faith unless the Spirit first draw him. That's the teaching of John chapter 6, for example, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Same thing in verse 65. Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of the Father. Unless God the Father is drawing an individual. Unless God is giving that individual something. No man comes to Jesus Christ. Faith does not have its source in man. Instead, from a positive point of view, faith is a gift that's given to us by the work of the Spirit. It's worked in us. And again, that's what Scripture is telling us. In those passages we just read, but in other passages. Passages such as Acts 16, verse 14 explains to us why did Lydia, that seller of purple, believe and worship God? The answer is that well, it says in a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. And now here's the explanation. Whose heart the Lord opened. He opened her heart. An even clearer passage regarding the source of faith would be Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says, which speaks of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author of our faith. It came from Him and He gives it to us by His Spirit. Another passage, Philippians 1, verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. If you remove a few words to make it clear, it's telling us it's given to you to believe. Faith is a a gift from God. And that includes the fact that the Spirit is the one who gives us what we might call the the faculty of faith. He, He plants the seed of faith in our hearts. He gives us the capacity to believe. But then more than that, the Spirit is the one who works in us so that we believe. The the canons of Dort speak of the Spirit working in us the, the will to believe and the act of believing. He's the one who empowers, who energizes our believing. It's a gift of God given to us by the Spirit. And thus it's something to thank Him for. To praise Him for. That is, after all, the example that we find in Scripture. In Scripture, there are a number of miracles involving Jesus Christ healing a blind man or a group of blind men. And those miracles are relevant to this morning's sermon because the miracle of restoring sight to a blind man 
is a picture of God giving faith to someone. Apart from this gift, we are blind from a spiritual point of view. Unable to see the truth about God. Unable to see the truth concerning ourselves. And thus, unable to see the truth about Jesus Christ. But when God gives us faith, He he gives us the spiritual eyes to see. That's the idea of faith. And now the point is, what's the response of these individuals? who are the objects of these miracles. They praise God for the gift. That was a response of a group of men whom Jesus healed in this way. We read, we read about them that they, they spread abroad the fame of Jesus Christ. That is, they, they couldn't keep it in. They were so full of joy and enthusiasm, they could not but tell others about what Christ had done for them. This is the response of blind Bartimaeus. We read about him. And immediately he received his sight and followed him that has followed Christ, glorifying God. As he went along his way following his Savior, he he was glorifying God because he had received the gift of faith. And shall we not do the same? who were blind, but now can see, who have been given the gift of faith, whereby we may lay hold of Jesus Christ. Knowing the wonder of this gift should lead us to thank our God, to love our God, to glorify our God. That's an explanation largely of the source of our faith. But now, having established the main truth, doesn't have its source in man. Instead, it's a gift of God given to us by the Spirit. We want to dig a little deeper. We want to try to understand this at a, a slightly deeper level. And especially what we want to look at for a few moments is how does faith then relate to the truth that I'm united to Jesus Christ? And we ask that question in light of the language found in answer 20. Answer 20 taught us that not all men are saved by Christ, but only those who are engrafted into Him and receive all His benefits by a true faith. When it speaks of being engrafted into Jesus Christ, it's talking about our union with Christ. The fact that we are in Christ. And then, it tells us that this happens by a true faith. So that the question becomes, what, is that, what does that mean? How exactly does that work that I'm engrafted into Christ by a true faith? To answer that question, we need to start with the truth that it's the Spirit of Christ who establishes that union, that bond between us and Jesus Christ. It has to be that way. It cannot be faith itself establishing the bond. Because as we just saw, faith does not have its source in man. Faith is one of the the gifts, the blessings of salvation that 
Christ earned on the cross for us that has to be given to us, that has to be conferred upon us. So that the reality is that faith cannot even be in us before the Spirit begins to establish this union. So it cannot be faith itself. And thus, the truth of Scripture is that it's the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who establishes this bond, this connection between us and our Savior. He does this by coming to us. To live in our hearts. To dwell in us. Or to put it differently, Christ Himself takes hold of us and makes us His habitation by His Spirit. And as a part of that work, he, the Spirit gives us the life of Christ. He takes us who were dead sinners and He, he makes us alive again. And all that is to say that it's the Spirit who is the one establishing the connection so that we can say that the Spirit is the bond of our union with Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. But now where does faith come in? How does that factor in? Well, that comes in in that this union... Becomes the Spirit fully accomplishes this union when He gives us that gift of faith. For you see, a part of His overall work of establishing this union and making us alive is that He plants within us that seed of faith. He, he gives us the faculty of faith. He gives us the thing that we're going to need in order to receive salvation from Jesus Christ. And because that's the, the completing of this, the the union is fully accomplished at that point that we then that scripture thus teaches us that we are engrafted into Christ by faith that the union has been fully established at that point and that's true even before we ever exercise that faith that's true ever, before we ever begin to act in faith, know Him and trust Him. Because simply by giving us the faculty, that seed, the Spirit has inclined. He's disposed our hearts to receiving the blessings of salvation. He's given us the instrument that we stand in need of. And that's why even when we look at our children, even a newborn babe, an infant. We can speak of them as being united to Christ by faith, trusting that he's been, they've been given that gift of faith. And it's for that reason that the, the bond, the union, is fully accomplished by the Spirit giving us the gift that we can also speak of faith as the bond. Ultimately, it's the Spirit who is the bond of our union because He's the one establishing the union. But because this work is fully accomplished, when He, he gives us this gift, that means there's a sense in which faith is the bond. It's what links us back to Him so that we can receive the blessings that are found in Christ. But now we can go one step further. Spirit establishes this union. 
And it's fully accomplished when He gives us the gift of faith. But now to go one step further, this union is then realized when the believer exercises his faith. For when the Spirit plants the seed of faith in us, that seed does not lie dormant. But instead, it sprouts, it grows as the the life of Christ comes flowing to us like the the sap flows from the vine to the branch, well, that, that life of Christ has an effect on us. It touches our minds. And our minds are renewed. And with our renewed minds, we now know the truth of God's Word. And that life of Christ touches our wills. And with our renewed wills, we then trust in Jesus Christ. We embrace Him as our own. So that the point is, this gift of faith becomes active in the child of God. We begin to exercise our faith. And in that way, the union is realized in the sense that we become conscious of it, but then also in the sense that that union comes to fruition. We, We begin to know and experience and to enjoy this union with Christ. We're able to derive comfort from this union with Jesus Christ. So that first it's Christ who lays hold of us, who who makes us His dwelling place. He apprehends us, but then having been apprehended by Christ, we then apprehend Him. Faith lays hold upon Jesus Christ. So that, to go back to the very first question, what does it mean that we're engrafted into Christ by faith? Well, it means both that This union is fully established by the Spirit giving us faith. And this union is then realized as we come to exercise our faith. But now all of that said, we need to be reminded of the importance then of truly exercising our faith. We've tried to provide some theological clarity, but that theological clarity will do us no good if we fail to live out of it. It does us no good to know all of these facts about saving faith, know what Scripture says about faith, or what the the catechism says about faith, but then fail to exercise our faith. Thus we are to believe. We are to know. We are to trust. And especially we are to believe in Christ for our salvation. That includes believing in Christ for the remission of our sins and for righteousness. That's the language that the catechism uses. It says that faith is an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the Gospel in my heart then not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. When it speaks of the remission of sins and righteousness, it's talking about our justification. It's talking about the fact that in order to be right with God, we need a righteousness from outside of ourselves, a righteousness that comes from another because what the law taught us is that I'm unrighteous. 
of myself. I have not kept God's law perfectly. And therefore, I need the obedience of another to be given to me if I'm going to be right with God. And that obedience is found in Christ. That righteousness comes from Him. From His saving work whereby He paid for our sins. From His saving work whereby He he lived a life of perfect obedience on our behalf. Unless the calling is to believe in Him. To look to Him for that remission and for that righteousness. It's not enough to know a lot about Jesus Christ. That's not what's going to save us. It's not even an orthodox understanding in the area of Christology that saves. But it's Christ who saves us. And therefore, by faith, we are to lay hold of Him. That is, consciously and willingly embrace Him. Trust in Him. Looking to Him alone for our salvation. That's the call of the Gospel. To believe in Jesus Christ. And we're to believe in Him really for the whole of our salvation. It's not just for the remission of sins and for righteousness that we look to Christ, but for every aspect of our salvation. And we say that in light of what we considered last time that in Christ is found the fullness of our salvation. That's what Lord's Day 6 taught us when it quoted from 1 Corinthians 1 that He was made unto us wisdom and sanctification and righteousness and redemption. It's teaching us that the whole of salvation is found in Him. And that means we look to Him for our sanctification, for our preservation. It's not just... It's not the case that, well, we're justified by faith alone apart from works. But then, sanctification and preservation, that's by faith and works. No. We're sanctified by faith alone. We're preserved by faith alone. And now it's true, in sanctification, God so works in us that our faith is made fruitful. But even then, those fruits of faith, those good works, are not the instrument whereby we receive these blessings of sanctification and preservation. What that means is that as we seek to live a sanctified life, when we, as we struggle against sin, as we find ourselves ensnared in this sin or in that sin, we need to look to Christ to embrace Him for our sanctification. It means when we're weary as pilgrims. When we're ready to throw in the towel because the way is difficult before us. We look to Christ for our preservation. For Him to give us the grace that we need to press on. We are to exercise the faith that He's given to us. And that's true even more broadly than what we've already said. We've been focusing on exercising our faith with respect to salvation, finding it all in Him, but really this applies to the whole of life. To every aspect of our daily lives. We are to exercise our faith in all things. So that when we read the news or hear the news 
And all we see is lawlessness around us. When we see our government officials making seemingly nonsensical policies, how does that make any sense at all? Why would you ever do that? Well, by faith we look up. And we remember Christ is on His throne. He's still ruling over all. This applies to the the inconveniences of life. Whether it's getting stuck in traffic on the way to work, whether it's nothing going right in the home with regard to taking care of the home. By faith, we're to look to the truth of God's providence. And the fact that everything that's happening to us is, is governed by His hand so that we then are willing to submit ourselves to His will. This applies to the questions of life and the struggle we have to make sense of it. Why did this have to happen to me? Why did I have to go through this trial or this difficulty? Nothing seems to make sense to me. It all seems wrong. And thus by faith we are to trust in His wisdom. Seems wrong to us, but it's not wrong to Him. He knows what's best. We're to exercise our faith. We're to exercise our faith when everything seems against us. When it's hardship after hardship. When there's burden upon burden placed upon us and and we begin to wonder, does He still love me? Does He care about me? Is, Is God trying to destroy me? Has He cast me off? Then by faith, we are to lay hold of His love. His love for us in Jesus Christ. And to trust He is working all things, all things for my good. Those are just a few examples of what it means to exercise our faith and to live by faith. So may God so strengthen our faith by means of His Word. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the gift of faith. We praise Thee for taking spiritually blind sinners and opening our spiritual eyes. And we love Thee for working all of this powerfully and irresistibly by Thy Spirit in our hearts. Strengthen our faith and work in us both the will to believe and the act of believing by the power of Thy Spirit. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.